Well, this morning as we come to the word of the Lord, we're back in the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 to 22 is our text for this morning. If you turn there in your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1201, and we would love for you to follow along with us if you did not bring your Bible. Last week, we introduced the topic of mediation, and we talked about the four elements which occur in our modern-day conception of mediation. We talked about how mediation number one kept you out of court, about how mediation number two was mutual. We talked about, thirdly, how mediation was neutral. And fourth, we talked about how mediation was binding. These principles we saw evidenced in the text, or a portion of them last week, and we'll see that they continue to be evidenced as we move along in our text today. Although, like last week, sometimes not in the way that we're expecting or that we're used to seeing them in our secular perspective on mediation. So let's return to our text and our title from last week, The Necessity of Mediation. The Necessity of Mediation, and we could call this part two as we continue on. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 is our text, but I'm going to go back to verse 11 because this is all in that context, and so I want you to have the flow of that context as we move along. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses... To all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say 
all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The necessity of mediation. Our message today becomes the third in the series as we discuss this contrast of the blood. In our first message in verses 11 to 14, we looked at the introduction to the contrast of blood. And our author began, as we have just read, by contrasting the blood of bulls and goats to the blood of Jesus Christ, which he shed. And this introduction was also a contrast of the types of purification. Namely, the external bodily cleansing, which was brought about by the blood of the bulls and goats versus the full cleansing of the conscience which came through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That cleansing of the flesh again was just an external cleansing. It tells us just prior in the scripture that never did it purify the conscience of the believer. However, the blood of Christ brings a full cleansing of that conscience. We know that the contrast exists because in the Old Covenant, as soon as the believer had, or whoever the worshiper was, brought the sacrifice, as soon as that sacrifice was over, again there was the building up and the piling on of sin. And there was the recognition of guilt for the one who truly understood and was pursuing hard after Christ. So, with Christ, no longer is there that conscience understanding of a continual building of sin. For Jesus has paid that price, and thus our consciences are purified. Then last week, we started into our section in verses 15 to 22. And as we did, we looked at the first two points of our message. The first point was in verse 15. We titled it, The Mediator. This is a fairly long and somewhat complicated verse, as well as with some amazing elements, which if you missed that message, I'd encourage you to go back onto our church website, and you can follow up and listen to some of those incredible details. But the verse boiled down to Jesus providing an eternal inheritance to the faithful Old Testament saints. Now, that in eternal inheritance was the facet of salvation, which Jesus brought to those under the old covenant. That is to the children of Israel, those under the Mosaic law. And it was a gift and inheritance which they were given that they would not lose. This was a very good gift for them. And it was a very amazing revelation as our author tells this Jewish church that it is their predecessors, it is those Old Testament believers, those who are truly saints, to whom this inheritance was promised. This came through his death, and thus it was because of his shed blood. And we're immediately drawn in to the continuation of our contrast of the blood. And in Jesus' death was the mediation. That is, he stood in the middle of two parties that were contrary to one another. We could go as far as to say these two parties were hostile to one another. Of course, we're talking about God and man. And hostile is the right word to use. Man's hostility to God was evident and yet remains evident today as man desires to throw off the yoke of God 
and not live according to his word, but pursue their own self-styled fashion of righteousness and religion. God, on the contrary, is righteously hostile because of man's rebellion and rejection. The high-handed purposeful sins which man commit, those which they throw flagrantly in the face of our God, are those for which God will not overlook, which he recognizes that these are the ways in which man continues to rebel. So Jesus has mediated and taken the wrath of God, which was to be upon man, and he has taken it upon himself. And in that mediation, God poured out his full wrath of the sins of man upon the shoulders of his son. This is what happened at Calvary. This is when our Lord bore all the sins that we commit on a daily basis. Took them so that we who should be punished for all time because of these sins that we commit were laid upon him. And in the great exchange, his alien righteousness was laid upon us. And we were then seen as holy and righteous in his eyes. An incredible exchange. Well, this was our first principle of mediation in keeping one from going to court. And it was indeed a wonderful keeping from court that we did not stand before a righteous God in our own merits for we have nothing to bring to him. But instead, Jesus stands in our stead as the mediator. He is the mediator of a new covenant. And that new covenant is that by which he brings us new life. It is a unilateral covenant. It's not something like the old covenant that the worshiper participates in, but it's something that is given completely by God, where he gives us a new heart. He takes our hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He places his Holy Spirit within us, and he writes his law upon our hearts so that we know that which is righteous and good. A beautiful exchange and all of this resulting in that glorious eternal inheritance of salvation. These Old Testament saints are described in verse 15 as those who were disobedient or transgressed the first covenant. That first covenant again being the Mosaic covenant. And we notice that Jesus' blood brought the redemption for all of the sins committed under that old first covenant. The ver verse 15 says, So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant. There is no limitation in that statement. It is his blood which covered the sins of all of the Old Testament saints. But we need not worry that this is in some way going to uh, result in some type of universal salvation for all of the Old Testament Jews, particularly those that were rebellious. Because then it is immediately clarified in verse 15 that it is only those who have been called to whom this covering is effective. Thus, although the redemption was provided... For all the transgressions of the first covenant, it is only effective to those whom were called. And that word called, as with the New Testament, always speaks about one thing. It speaks about salvation. Those who are called to receive the eternal inheritance. 
It's the same manner of choosing again that God uses in the New Testament repeatedly. As we discussed last week, this is the same concept that we see in 1 John 2 with the New Testament believer as was shown with the Old Testament believer. Through this, we're exposed to the problem that arose in the early church. And it's vital for us to recognize the problem because that's what our author is teaching us about. You see, the earlier Jewish believers are losing sight of what Christ did for them in his sacrificial death. They're not seeing a dead Messiah as all that great of a thing. It's like, well, you know, that's wonderful, but, but we expected, as we read the Old Testament, we expected a victorious Messiah. We expected a Messiah that was going to come in and wipe out all of our enemies. And we were going to rule again. We're tired of being thumbed by these Romans. We're tired of being under the oppressive hand of all of these different regimes. Our Messiah is to deliver us, and now he is dead, and they're not seeing a value in that. They're not seeing a value for them in this sacrificial death. It reminds us of, of that statement we hear today, well, what have you done for me lately? That was the attitude they had. They initially thought Messiah again was going to rule, but that did not happen. And they've seen much more so that 15 to 20 years prior to this, they were driven out of their home. Imagine that. The whole Jewish community was driven out of Rome because of the persecution that was going on. Well, now they've returned. Now they are gathered again as a church of believers, a Hebrew church. And Nero is out there killing all the Christians in the street. Well, it looks pretty likely that we might be the next target because pretty soon he's going to run out because he's going through Christians by the hundreds. Well, the next easy target is going to be us. So what is Jesus doing? They're not recognizing his work in providing eternal inheritance. So Paul writes to tell them that not only do they receive this, but so did the Old Testament saints. Then in our second point was the mechanism of mediation in verses 16 to 17. And these verses, as we talked about, are a generic reference to a human will or a last testament. The word covenant has no defining term in verses 16 and 17. Thus it is indefinite. And these verses describe what happens very simply in a human will. The same mechanisms that go on today in our day and age. Namely, that the will becomes effective when the one who made it dies. That's what verse 16 tells us. And then in verse 17, we have the reverse that states that the will is not effective while the man lives. Of course, we understand why that is also, don't we? Because... You may change your mind. I may decide I'm going to give a little bit more to this son and a little less to that son. Or maybe I've already given some to this son, so I'm going to give everything to the other. So until the man dies, it's not effective. That's the mechanism of mediation. And these verses, they might seem unconnected to us, except for that final word of verse 15, inheritance. So although the verses are speaking of a generic covenant or human will, there is a connection to Jesus' shed blood, and that connection is still coming. More is to be revealed as we move now to our third point, the mandate of mediation. The mandate of mediation 
in verses 18 to 21. Let's look at verse 18 together. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. Verse 18 draws us to an important point of emphasis. That's what the conjunction therefore means. That there is an important point of highlight that's coming about that we need to pay attention to. And we could summarize what therefore means as saying, therefore, because of the way that a will works, verses 16 and 17, and because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant through his blood, which brought the promises of eternal inheritance, verse 15, now there is established a mandate of mediation. And that mandate of the first covenant was the blood of animals. Blood is again mentioned in our verse because of the type of death which is being described. Back in verses 16 and 17, it's not necessarily referencing a bloody death. Men die often, and in most cases, it is not of a horrific and bloody nature as the sacrifices are. So now our author is drawing us back to the connection of the blood sacrifices of the old covenant system. And the mandate of mediation required this blood to be shed in order for the covenant to be inaugurated. That shed animal blood affected the old covenant. It was the instrument that inaugurated the first covenant. The blood of these sacrificial animals was the foreshadowing of Christ's blood. And as the first covenant was inaugurated with blood, as we have seen, this is why verse 18 is written with an emphatic negation. Listen to it again. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. It's written to draw us to think, well, what's it saying there? Why does it use the negation and what's the even doing? Because it's referring to another inauguration and another covenant and another type of blood. All the while drawing us in in that beautiful style of prose that we have become so used to in this meticulous book of Hebrews. Verse 19 then shows us how the instrument of the animal blood was used. Look at it. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Here are the facts of the old covenant sacrificial system. The first thing we notice is that these events took place after the commandments were spoken. So this blood inauguration occurred after God's law was revealed to the people at Sinai. Remember that? We've spoken about that often. What a dramatic scene it was as God told Moses to have the, purifi have the people purify themselves for three days and then bring them to the mountain. And as they did so, and as Moses ushered them to the foot of the mountain, and God says, let no one come to the mountain, let no cattle nor animal set foot on the mountain, for it will die. And the cloud comes down in the people's presence upon the mountain with lightning, 
blasting around. What a beautiful visage we have here in our community of the power of that lightning and thunder. And the fire is coming up and the cloud, the smoke is rising off the top of the mountain. And God speaks through this thunder and lightning to the people. And he speaks the Ten Commandments. And, and, and as he finishes that, the people fall upon their face. As so should all wise men. And then they say to Moses, don't let us hear from God anymore. You speak to us, we can take you, but, but God, we're, we don't know that we can handle that anymore. They understand that they have come before holiness. And God doesn't just speak the commandments, but all of the law he brings forth to them. He made sure that they understood all of the nuances before this blood element came into being. The inauguration occurred after all of that. It was vital that the people knew all that God had commanded them before they entered into a covenant. He wasn't going to take them into a relationship that they didn't fully understand. This was not going to be some kind of shotgun wedding. God was going to make sure they knew all of the details of this system. You remember our principles of mediation. Well, the second principle was that the mediation, the mediator was neutral. When two people go to mediation before one who will mediate their claims, all the details are heard and the facts are brought forward. Not only is the mediator neutral, but the process is set up to be neutral. All of the grievances of one side are brought against all of the grievances of the other. And everything is laid out so that we have a neutral situation that's being brought forward. Well, as we consider that situation, the resulting action is to be fair. And this is in accord with the law. God's righteous law requires this careful step to make sure everyone is understood. Well, once this occurred, then the blood was sprinkled. We notice that the blood is indicated along with water in verse 16. That is, it serves two purposes. First, it was so that that blood would be thinned, so that it would not dry too quickly, and that it could be sprinkled more easily, as blood does dry very quickly because of its viscous and thick nature. But we'll see that there is another more important element of mixing the water with the blood, which added to its volume. We'll see in just a few minutes what that effect was. Furthermore, we see the instrument used was a combination of bushes and string. Now, this is if we were to go out to one of the bushes right out in the front of the property here and cut off a few stems and take a string and tie them together. It's the same type of an, of an instrument that's being designed and discussed for us. The hyssop was the bush and it was identified in the Passover where they were to take the blood of the lamb and hyssop and they were to paint the doorposts and the lintel of their home so that the angel of the Passover, the death angel, would not come to their home but would pass over. We also see hyssop in the red heifer sacrifice. But as we think about that bunch of hyssop that's taken, probably six to eight strands, and then it's tied off at the bottom with a string made of wool. Now that not only held the bundle together so that they had some of an effective tool for sprinkling, but it also, being made of wool, acted like a sponge 
So there were several wrappings around the base of that, and it became quite a thick amount so that it would be a continual soaking so that you didn't have to dip and sprinkle and dip and sprinkle. There would be a continual source of that mixture of blood and water. What is particularly interesting is that the wool is told to us as being dyed scarlet. The Greek word for scarlet comes from the kokinos berry. It is a berry that was crushed to make a scarlet dye. And now the, the blood would obviously have dyed the white wool. And we ask, well, why did they do that? Well, a pre-dyed fabric kept the wool from becoming dark brown as the thin blood would dye about the edges or would dry about the edges. And thus, throughout the re-immersion, it would remain that red color. It would remain a reminder to the people of what was going on. Then we see that the book itself and all the people were sprinkled. Now, some have argued this was likely symbolic. They say there's no way that all of Israel could have been sprinkled. I disagree. The Bible says all the people were sprinkled. When the Bible says all the people were sprinkled, I believe all the people were sprinkled. I don't think we have to get too complicated about that. Additionally, when we think about that, think about the Old Testament sacrifices. Think about how much was involved with every family to bring a sacrifice and all of the elaborate processes that went on with that. Sprinkling all of the people is very simplistic alongside of sacrifices for every family that occurred on a particular holy day as they did. I believe that exactly what happened is that all of the people passed by and they were sprinkled by Moses and the priests with the hyssop, with the mixture of the blood and water, and hence the need to add the water so that there would be a large enough volume to sprinkle all of the people as they moved past the religious leaders. The book also was sprinkled. This is not like the books, however, that we hold in our hands today or the, uh, the book indeed that you have that is your Bible in your lap. Rather, it was a scroll. It's associated with the Greek word biblos, which is where we get our word Bible. But it was a scroll. Books, bound books did not come into existence until around 100 to 200 A.D. So back at the time of Moses, everything was written on papyrus. They would take a, a, a large reed of papyrus, which grew in circular stock, somewhat like a uh, um, artichoke. That's the word I'm looking for, like an artichoke, in these rings. So they would split it, and they would open it up, and it would fan out. So they would invert the pieces one to another so that they would get a horizontal piece. And they would sew them together, and they would write upon them. And then this became the scroll. So that's what was being sprinkled here was the scroll of the Torah. The scroll needed cleansed as well because it was made by human hands. And now it is to become a holy instrument. So it too needed to be sprinkled. Verse 20 quotes the words that Moses said in Exodus 24 and verse 8, where it says... This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Now, this is a, a slightly abbreviated form of Exodus 24 and verse 8. But the, it's clear that the intent is the same as Moses's, which was to convey God's command of the blood. Moses's words were, as they were repeated, the worshiper could not help but recognize the now 
very familiar words of the Lord's Supper, which was uttered every time they took communion. Those words which state, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So as they were reflected back, as these Jewish believers were reflected back to God's commandment in Exodus 24, the truncation of Moses' very words reminded them of Jesus' words. There's no missing the connection here. Verse 21 then gives us yet more information where it says, And in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. Just as the people were cleansed, just as the book was cleansed, the scroll was cleansed, the tabernacle itself and all the fixtures had to be cleansed. They had to cleanse the tent that went over the tabernacle. They had to cleanse all of the pieces that made up the structure of the tabernacle. They had to cleanse the lampstand that was inside, the table of showbread that was inside, the altar of incense that was inside. Even the external elements of the brazen laver where the priests would wash their hands after the sacrifices needed to be cleansed. The bronze altar which they burnt the sacrifices on needed to be cleansed. In fact, Exodus 29 tells us that the brazen altar needed cleansing for seven days because of the holiness of that which went on in the burning of the offerings. It's interesting that the very same seven-day cleansing of that altar is what Ezekiel speaks about in the Millennial Temple and what we were talking about just last Wednesday night in Ezekiel chapter 43. Join us this week as we roll along into chapter 44. All of the implements needed cleansed. The, the wick trimmers, the pans for the incense, the, the spatulas for the showbread, the hooks, the stirrers, the forks for the burnt offering. Everything needed to be cleansed with blood. Well, here is the mandate of mediation. And a, another concept of our idea of mediation arises, namely that it was mutual. In the mediation, both parties agree to the process. Here, both God and the people agree to what is coming. Excuse me. The people had agreed to all of the commandments. They'd been read before them. They agreed to thus be sprinkled. So there was a mutual element on a part of the people. There was also a mutual element on the part of God because he agreed to ordain and make holy all of these implements which would carry forth this covenant. So there is a very similar mutual element of this mediation. And this he did through the sprinkling of the blood and this was the mandate of mediation. All of the elements of the covenant needed sprinkled with this blood. This was necessitated in order to prepare them rightly for the inclusion of God's covenant. This was the stipulation of the law. There was no other way that this could happen. And the picture amidst all this sprinkling with blood is unmistakable, beloved. The blood is the central component of the covenant. It's involved in everything. With the tabernacle, the utensils, the book, all the people being sprinkled, it would be impossible for anyone to miss this point. And we spoke last week about this whole concept 
of cleansing with blood. Again, I'd refer you back to that message for those details. But that leads us to our next point. We've seen the mediator. We've seen the mechanism of mediation. We've seen the mandate of mediation. And our final component remained in our fourth point, And it is the mechanism of forgiveness. The mechanism of forgiveness in verse 22. Look at verse 22 as we consider the mechanism of forgiveness. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The verse begins, according to the law. It takes us right back to our former point, the mandate of mediation, through which the law required the sprinkling of blood in verse 19. Very same phrase, according to the law. Now another facet of the law is brought forward. That is that all things are cleansed with blood per the law. Now initially when we read this, it seems like, is this just a restatement of our previous point? Is this just a, a boiling down and a summation form of, that ver of those verses? No, it's not. And the word that changes the meaning in verse 22 is the word almost. Almost. Almost introduces a contingent or optional condition. It reveals to us that there were some other cases in which blood was not required. Now these cases are rare exceptions. But if you remember back in your Old Testament scriptures, back to Leviticus, back to Numbers... There were a few cases that other elements than blood were used for these elements of cleansing. Those conditions occur, occurred namely for the poorest of the believers in the nation of Israel. The cleansing was to be with blood. It was to be with a lamb, spotless and undefiled, that was brought before the Lord and sacrificed. But if the family was too poor to bring a lamb, the Lord also allowed two turtle doves to be brought. But in those cases where even two turtle doves, which were purchased for a cent apiece, when they could not afford that, they could simply bring finely milled flour. And in that case, in that rare case, was the condition where blood was not used. Now these were very few. And as we also saw back in verse 13, all of these sacrifices were only for external cleansing. Even the lamb, even the two turtle doves and the blood of it only provided external cleansing for bodily elements, for failures to obey the law regarding the washing of hands or observing the proper food sacrifices. It was only an external cleansing. So it's very different than what we're talking about. Nonetheless, our Bible gives us the exact condition of what happened. It reflects the complete truth of the law. And it, and it takes time to show us that there was this unique little area. As it does so, it gives us a higher level of confidence in understanding what God did, reminding us what happened as it drives us back to look at what the almost meant. And it shows us the specificity and accuracy of God's word. 
This is why we make the statement that God's word has verbal plenary inspiration. That is, the verbal being every word. Plenary meaning all the words and that it is inspired that, at that level. Every word in this holy book is inspired and given to us and is truthful. And even in these nuances like almost, we are given greater clarity on that. But when it came to true purification, such as was required to make the implements holy, only blood was acceptable. And the last half of the verse confirms this fact where it says, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. No exception whatsoever exists in this statement. Only by blood can there be forgiveness. This reminds the worshiper of Jesus' words in Matthew 26 and verse 28. We see there in Matthew 26, 28, where it says, for the Lord says, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness further confirms that we're speaking of here, of what we're speaking of here relates only to people and not to things, implements and the like. Because the, the word forgiveness can also be well translated as remission. A word meaning to remove. This is, as one commentator notes, literally ascending away of these sins. As we think of that, we can't help but be reminded of the scapegoat back in Exodus. The two goats that were brought, one became the sacrifice, on the other the priest laid his hands and therein laid all of the sins of the people and that goat was taken out in the wilderness and those sins were removed from the people. The same idea is being brought forward for us in this understanding of remission in this understanding of being taken away as the word forgiveness indicates. Beloved, our sins are completely removed. Scripture is so powerful as it speaks about that. In Psalm 103 in verse 12 where it says our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. No way we can even understand that conception because you can always go farther apart in the east and west. Micah 7.19 also touches on this, where Micah says in the 19th verse of the 7th chapter, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And all of this from God's compassion. All of this from God's love for us. What a beautiful picture he brings us. And he treads them underfoot. They are gone and remembered no more. As if walking upon a beautiful Alabama white sandy beach. And as your foot steps upon the grain of sand, it is shoved below to never be recognizable again. These are the way that the Lord deals with our sins. He says that he will take them to the depths of the deepest sea. Something that we start to get a picture of in our modern day age, but for the ancient Israelite, they would have no idea of this depth. Another text that speaks about this is Isaiah 43.5 and is a great reminder. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
an, an emphatic beginning. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember them. This is something that is only divine. Men cannot do this. Our memories continue to reflect upon those things which is done. But God removes them such that they are no longer a part of his memory about us. I particularly also love Isaiah 44, 22. Isaiah 44, 22 says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This idea of a cloud that is here and then gone, or the thick mist, as we know of early heavy morning fog, and before we know it, it is just vanished and vaporized before us. And then God calls out, return to me. Return to me, come back to me, for I have redeemed you. And this, beloved, happens only by the shed blood of Christ. This Greek word for shed blood in verse 22 is a compound word. It's found nowhere else in the scripture. In fact, to my knowledge and the sources that I have, it's found nowhere else in Greek literature. Because it is a word originated in the mind of God. And the, one, and the author realized this through the empowering of the Holy Spirit and brings this unique word into existence as it describes the one-time act of Jesus' shed blood providing forgiveness. Beloved, this is remission. And this taking away, this forgiveness, it is the greatest cleansing of all recorded history. One commentator notes with regards to this cleansing and that which is cleansed, he says, nothing clings and sticks so frightfully close to the sinner as his sin, his guilt, and his justly deserved punishment. You know, that, that, that phrase reminds me of having tar on my hands. If you've ever had tar on your hands or on your feet, it's impossible to get off. It just, it sticks. You can't wash it off. You try and take oil and olive oil and you basically have to get gasoline to get this stuff off your hands. It's just there. That is the, that is the effect of sin. That is the effect of our guilt. It sticks to us. It clings to us. It's unremovable with the exception of the blood of Christ. But by the blood of Christ, we are flee, freed. But by the blood of Christ, we are redeemed. But by the blood of Christ, we are ransomed. 1 John 1, 7 puts it this way. 1 John 1 and 7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But the first thing we must be doing is we must be walking we must be walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Our lives must reflect a worthy walk. They must reflect the truth of scripture. And we must continue to evidence all of Christ's saving work. Not only is this, there this element of walking, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Fellowship is a critical function of our evidencing of our walk with Christ. Well, we say, well, we love to fellowship, but do we? Do we delight to be in church every time the doors are open? Because there is this opportunity to grow in the light, to grow in fellowship. 
Or do we find that maybe there's a bit of that, that sticky tar of sin and guilt and, and really being around all those people all the time isn't just exactly what I'd like to do. I'd kind of like to be doing my own thing. Fellowship and church become a key element. And all of this becomes that by which the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. A few verses later in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a glorious truth to recognize his forgiveness and that we are cleansed from all unrighteousness by the blood of Christ. This is the eternal inheritance of the mediator in verse 15. This is the mechanism of mediation which God wills to us through the death of of Jesus and the glorious inheritance which is ours. It is the mandate of mediation that it came only through his blood. And the point which cannot be missed is the value of the blood of Jesus. The only way for these first century Jewish believers to inherit salvation is through the bloody sacrificial death of this Messiah. His blood is of inestimably more value than all of the sacrifices put together. Not only did they receive this inheritance of forgiveness, but so did their predecessors under the old covenant. His blood alone provides forgiveness. And here is where we encounter the last principle of mediation, namely that of being binding. Oh, this mediation was binding indeed for one party. For Jesus, it was ultimately binding. It resulted in his death. But this mediation principle is completely reversed for the other party. That is for us. It is not only not binding for us, it is unbinding for us. It looses us. It frees us from this guilt. It washes off that sin that sticks to us like tar. Our worldly understanding completely changes. But God in his plan of mediation It is not like our worlds. We are not bound. Beloved, Jesus Christ has set you free and you are free indeed. This is the glorious message of the gospel. This is the hope of the world. The message of the new covenant which is written on believers' hearts. This is that which we must recognize as the law of salvation the release of the prisoners, the eternal jubilee which frees man who is condemned to die. Oh, my dear brothers and sisters, this is a glorious message indeed. But it is for those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is those who are living in obedience to his word. It is those who are recognizing that their sin is ever about them. It is in their very flesh and that there is a war that is waging battle between the spirit and the flesh. But we must recognize this battle. We must recognize it is waging in our bodies. If we don't recognize that there is a battle, then we're probably just caving and losing the battle. God says, no, that cannot be. You must recognize who you are in Christ. You must recognize that through his blood, he has paid the price to cleanse you, to wash you from this horrific filthiness. But you have to know it. And you have to live it because this is what carrying forth this truth is all about. 
What a blessing is the necessity of mediation. I pray that through this blood-washed redemption, you will be empowered to grow exponentially in your most holy faith. That the blessings of fellowship will be ever more treasured and desired in your heart. That the gifts of serving will be your constant striving. And that the power of the Spirit-driven Word of God, you will desire more than your daily provision. This is the glory of the gospel of what has been done. This is the power of forgiveness which has been granted to us. May God be pleased to use each of us to carry this message which he has inscribed upon our hearts out into this desperately needy world.